Lying is a sin which divides. Truth is the most precious of things which actually unites, which brings people into unity with God and with one another. You can already see the first pictures of that in the garden with the lies of Satan and the great division that happened between God and humanity. But you can also see that, I think, in relationships. Some of you, I don't doubt, have worked alongside people who lied or have done deals in business with people who lied. Perhaps, sadly, some of you have been in a relationship with somebody who lied. And you had your suspicions at first. You weren't sure who you were dealing with. Perhaps somebody's late again and again, or they are evasive, or one of your children is not giving you straight answers, or in business somebody wheels and deals and always seems to kick the can a little further down the road, and what happens? Or somebody gives you different answers at different times, or you hear of them saying things differently to one person than they say to your face. And what happens is a relational divide. And in our our culture right now, sadly, it seems that the father of lies that we looked at this morning is hard at work. We now have thousands of different theories and ideas. And even within the church, many different theological systems and ideas and winds of change and trends coming through, conspiracy theories, different economic theories, Theories of race and ethnicity. And then there's gossip in relationships that seems to become an acceptable sin. And what happens? Communities, churches, families, and relationships end up at least suspicious, if not completely broken. And so we as Christians should crave and do crave something better. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is pushing and pointing the Christian church towards a unity in the truth, a unity in Christ Jesus, a unity in the word that is ultimately what binds us together with God and with our Christian brothers and sisters and with the body of Christ into a unity that is better and greater And more permanent than anything you can see on this earth. You know, you can see people and as they latch on to something, they seem so unified. So one-minded. You see people that they really unified in their love for something like a sports team. They follow all the statistics. They march down the streets with their sweaters and their banners. And they are so united in some places over in Europe that... They will get in a fight over their sports team. They believe so strongly in that. But here when we are rooted in Christ and when we are looking to him and when we have the one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, we will have a unity in truth that is precious and edifying. We're going to look today, especially at the theme of edifying truth. 
And the beauty and glory of truth and how it unites the church together in a mutual edification when lies and gossip are left behind. When the lies and the trends of this world are left behind and God's people are single-mindedly focused on him and his word and the glory of what we confess. We'll be edifying each other. That means building up, strengthening, united. So we're going to look at edifying truth especially going to be looking at a call to unity, then the contrast, and then the beautiful and full picture of unity as the body of Christ. Well, verses 1 through 10 of the chapter lead into what we are looking at, and those verses are a call to unity in the church, and especially an endeavoring to keep unity. Unity in the church is something that since the time of Ephesus all the way till now needs To be worked at, needs to be sought, needs to be prayed for, needs to be diligently considered, needs to be something that we deeply desire and want and strive for and even enjoy. And many of God's people, they do desire this. They want to be unified in Christ. Now the sad thing about this unity is that the Lord told us and he warned us through his apostles, false teachers will come in. There will be those who bring divisions into the church. But ultimately, those divisions will only seek in the end to unite and to bind together those that truly love the Lord Jesus Christ and that are gathered in together with him. And here this picture is, is that this unity is founded on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This unity is because of actually his descent to this earth. Verse 9 and 10, he is the one who descended into the lower parts of the earth. And then he is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And the picture of this unity is, as we looked at this morning, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. The picture of this unity is that it's rooted in the gospel of knowing him who descended on our behalf right down to the cross, but then now has ascended to heaven. And now from heaven, he's pouring out on his church graces and gifts that lead to unity. So we should think in this chapter, as the Lord Jesus right now being ascended in victory... And then pouring out on his church, who's still going through challenges. Notice verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another. That this church that bears with challenges of disunity and even challenges of false teaching and division coming in. That the believers then endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. They're always looking for a unity, but that is a unity that is in Christ. It is one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We don't get to make up our own hopes, our own Lords, our own faiths. And that's one of the great problems of our age. That people seem to primarily define 
good Christian experience and good Christian life in terms of their own individualistic experience. But this chapter is calling us to a unity in Jesus Christ and looking to Jesus Christ that knits the church together and that binds the church together and that leads to a unity of faith. And what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to give that unity is he's given gifts to his church. Verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we come to the unity of the faith. So the Lord Jesus Christ gave apostles to the church. First, there was that generation of 12 men who went out into the world and they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and they preached and they called people to repentance and faith in him. And into looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel preaching is ultimately edifying. Edifying literally means in the original language. The edifying of the body of Christ. It means literally house building. House building. Apostle Peter speaks in another place. of We as living stones are being built into a spiritual house. And here the edifying preaching of the word preaching of the scriptures, it goes out into the church and it goes to God's people through the gift first of the apostles. And then in that generation, they had prophets, especially those called to prophetic ministries. But now we see a time actually of of ordinary evangelists, pastors and teachers going out into the world and doing this equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the apostles, they spoke the truth in love. They challenged the church. But they pointed again and again to this loving and edifying ministry. And what's interesting, if you take the word ministry there, that what's happening through the preaching of the word is actually that the church is to be led into a life that centers around ministry. For the equipping of the saints For the work of ministry. That word ministry underneath it is actually diakonia. It's the word that we think of as deacon. The word deacon is used very, or the Greek word for deacon is actually used very broadly in the New Testament. It's used over a hundred times. And it's sometimes translated minister, ministry, servant, service. Even the servants who brought the water at the wedding speaking and spoken of as deacons and so this was a broad work in Greek but the picture is is that there's a broader service of ministry so to speak at deaconing it's not the specific work of deacons who are called to an office of the church but that there is a broader ministry of deaconing of ministry of the church that all of the saints are to be equipped by the preaching of the word so that they become ministers that they become servants That their desire is to edify and to build up one another. And so the way it should happen when the church is healthy and strong is that all of the saints go out, we would say, in the ordinary calling of being prophets, priests, and kings. And they go out speaking the word and doing acts of service for the church of Jesus Christ. And they go out fighting against sin and Satan. They go out praying for God's people. And they go out with a priority to minister 
to the church of Jesus Christ and to build it up through edification. And this edification and this ministry is especially contrasted in this chapter. So all of God's people now think the gospel is being preached. The law is being preached to the church. God's people are being told God's will, both the gospel and then his will for them. And now being under the preaching, the calling is they now seek to go out and to be equipped for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The first calling there, by the way, of the church is to edify and to build up the church. So that means the preaching of the gospel here, the priority is, is that it leads up to the edification and the service and the ministry and the love and the care for the church. Some leapfrog principles like this. And they make believers feel that. Their first ministry and their first callings are somehow to go out into the world and to conquer all these things and do all these things. In one sense, that's true and needed and necessary. But for the first step is actually the edification, the the house building work that comes within the church. And how do we do this? We do this by listening to one another, knowing each other's needs, weaknesses, knowing what each family in the church is like as much as we can in each individual, knowing what they're going through. It often starts with listening, so we know where people need edification and building up, and then going and thinking. When you come into God's house on the Lord's Day, what can I say and listen to and talk to my brothers and sisters about that will build them up, that will edify them? How can I point them to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then also encourage and strengthen what truths do they need from the preaching of the gospel that I have learned and heard many of us our whole lives? What can we do with that? And so the calling of the church is you hear the preaching, you think about it, you chew on it, and then you think, First and foremost, now, what can I do with that to build up and even also to gather in the church of Jesus Christ? Part of it, and the work of prophecy of believers, is also to go out and to bring the gospel as you are able or as you are called to others. To call them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, the main emphasis is for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, there's a contrast in this chapter. There's a sad contrast that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. So there is this false teaching contrast which entered into the church again and again. Trends came in. And there's many New Testament warnings. By the way, notice it's cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. When cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting comes into the Christian church and comes to Christians, that means evil things at first look good. And they look like things that will help. And false teachings come in. And ideas come into the world that we're warned about. And the answer to these things is, by the way, the trends that came into the church, you can review them in church history, this cunning teaching, deceitful In the early age of the church, there were the Gnostics. 
who would say you can rise above this world. That the real message of Christianity is that you bring in some of these rituals and you say this prayer just right and you do a certain diet or maybe you join a mysterious sect and through incantations and a special power given to you that you can rise above this world and have true spiritual power and you can become a spiritual being like an angel. That lie is all through Mormonism other false religions it comes up again and again it is subtle it is deceiving but that's not the gospel of jesus christ the gospel is that we are forgiven by his grace and through his blood that we find our righteousness in him but then we are called to a life of ministry and service and actively ministering to families our church our loved ones and also the world around us And other new winds blew through the church, some leading back to paganism, some the ideas of Arianism. Jesus is a good example, a human man, just follow him. Other false, subtle, deceitful teachings came in, usually starting with a little error, little wrong teaching, and the lies of Satan came in again and again and again. And we live in a time where there's trend after trend. But the illustration is, is when we are going back here to the apostolic truth, The ministry of the gospel. And you can think of it in a way as, yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also those basic apostolic teachings of the creed we just confessed. That's actually the creed that would set apart the Christians from the Gnostics and the Christians later from the Arians and others, beginning with the basic truths of the story of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible, that God's people would go back to that again and again, and they would go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and prayerfully then go forth, living a holy life of the edification of the church. And the lies of Satan are, get obsessed with this or that, this trend or split or temptation or error, Or this new, seemingly shiny, great idea. Follow that and you'll find the way. But what does this passage lead us back to? The gospel, the word of Jesus Christ. The one unity that is in Christ and the unity that is in the spirit and the unity that is in the gospel of Jesus. Having gone to the cross and risen again. And now in verse 15. And it's actually started in verses 12 and 13. This picture Of the body of Christ being united in truth, united in one confession, to be a people who are growing up into the body of Christ, into even a certain perfection. A grown up, mature body of Christ church that's founded in him, that looks to him, and that's growing into the head, Christ. See, the answer to the problem of all the lies and the divisions and the relational problems is that the work of the ministry of the gospel being under that old preaching of sin, salvation, and then service it builds up the body of the the church of Christ so that every Christian now sees the need to speak the truth in love speak the truth in love verse 15 That phrase is so helpful that we as Christians, 
And our relationships in the church need to speak the truth in love. It's the answer to so many relational problems. So many problems even in families. Maybe some of the families have problems with teenagers or young people. Speaking the truth in love makes all the difference. Yes, we need straight shooting and honest definitions. Yes, the law needs to be preached. And the truth even needs to cut with a two-edged sword. And we need to call one another to repentance. And there must be accountability and there must be discipline. And there must be a clinging to the truth. And that clinging of truth is unifying. That, by the way, is why Reformed churches called their confessions the three forms of unity. The three forms of unity, because they believed that they would lay out a doctrinal system that God's people could all unite together around, and they would have this helpful teaching of the core doctrines of the Christian truth, and we could be united in that truth. And so truth is critical, it is important, and it points us back to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ again. But notice, there is a need to speak the truth in love. It's the very opposite of the lies of Satan. Truth in love. Remember we looked at this morning a little bit the Pharisees. They had some truth. They had no love. For some of us, truth is easier. For others, love is probably easier. You think that. Maybe we even think through our families that a certain definition of truth without love is easier for some of us to spout off. And a certain definition of love without truth is easier for others to sort of spout off and to run off with that trend. And we actually see that in our culture. What does our culture say? Love is love. But they mean that, but they mean by that is love is all tolerance, all acceptance, and that no matter which way a person is going, you just have to affirm, tolerate, and respect their choices no matter what those are, even if it's suicide. But that's not love at all anymore. We must be speaking the truth in love. How do we define the truth in love? Well, this love is the love of agape. It is sacrificial love. And so when we speak the truth in love to one another, it needs to be spoken in a uniquely Christ-like way, a way that's rooted in this unique word agape, this purely Christian word in a sense as it's become, which is a kind of love that can only be rooted in the sacrifice and the work of Jesus Christ. And this speaking the truth in love needs to be rooted in who Jesus Christ is and being in him and him working through us. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. He's the second Adam who refused the temptations of Satan. He never spoke a lie, no guile. He taught the law and the gospel, perfect truth. And at the cross, he displayed perfect love and even truth. And here is the thing, as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ being in a person incarnate, truth and love, and unity being in him, we have to understand that he's not a balance of truth and love. Not like he's 50-50 truth and love. 
No, he's 100% love and 100% truth. The purest and the most beautiful manifestation of love you could possibly have is at the cross of Jesus Christ and in him and in his person in laying down his life and going through that wrath and that horror in the place of us who have lied. And the perfection of truth is displayed in him. You'll notice in the Gospels, by the way, that when the Lord Jesus spoke the truth, to certain categories of people. He spoke it bluntly, clearly, out of love for his flock, his vineyard that was being trampled by false teachers. And so when the Lord Jesus spoke truth, and he spoke, spoke it very vehemently, calling people things like snakes and calling them a brood of vipers. When the Lord Jesus was doing that, we have to understand that behind that was his deep love for his true people and the gathering in of his people under his wings, as it were, and taking them out from under the false teaching of the devil. And so, if we are striving for the truth in the church, it must always be both 100% truth and 100% love as it was in Jesus Christ. None of us is sufficient for that. We find that our flesh so easily gets in the way. But all of us should be striving for this unity in doctrine, this unity in truth that goes back to the definitions of the Scripture, that goes back to Jesus Christ as He is revealed, and then takes His Word and speaks the truth in love to others. And you see, if the church is a church where the truth is spoken, not just because we're frustrated or we're venting our frustrations because somebody did this or somebody did that or this is happening or that is happening, but that it's truly spoken in love, it will become mature. And God's people will mature. And they'll be leaving behind lies and you'll notice later in the chapter, the calls, therefore, putting away lying. A big precursor to this is just leaving behind lies, repenting of lies, leaving behind deceitful lusts, verse 22. Leave that behind. And the call of God's people is to speak that uniquely Christian truth in Christian love to one another in faith by the Holy Spirit united to him. And then, yes, going about holding one another accountable, calling each other out in love, speaking about weaknesses, but then also bringing the encouragement of the gospel and the hope of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in faith united by him. And this is when a Christian church or the Christian church of all ages begins to mature and grow. Unity in doctrine, unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, speaking the truth in love. Is that the church we see in our age? All too often we see a divided and immature church. And we have to confess we've been a part of that. But now we continue in verse 15 may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. 
So when we are embracing one Lord, one faith, one baptism, absolute truth, and absolute love in Jesus Christ, and when we are in him, then the whole body of the church begins to grow up into him who is the head. And this is now a body picture that comes together. It was already coming together in verse 12, the edifying of the body of Christ and and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ. Children, you like to grow up, don't you? Many of you, I know some of my children, they have marks on the wall. They want to get taller. They want to see how much they've grown in the past year. They're excited about that. Well, what's interesting about the metaphor of this passage is it calls the children of God, really, to this sort of picture that we want to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head of Christ, that by our return to the gospel of Jesus Christ and edifying each other through the gospel and speaking God's word and building one another up and encouraging and strengthening that we hope and we pray the church begins to mature more and more. It grows literally, if you were to take it literally in this passage, the stature of the fullness of Christ, that it's like the church is growing taller and taller. And that is our hope, that the church would become mature. But what do we say about those churches that didn't do this. It's heartbreaking to think of some of the challenges that the first century churches who received this teaching faced. If you read the first part of the book of Revelation, many of these even exact churches, Ephesus, in danger of losing their first love. In danger of clinging maybe to an orthodoxy but losing the love. And the reality is, is that the church of all ages has too often been immature, weak, not prioritizing, edifying one another, and in our age, often living very individualistic lives and forgetting love. And we have not seen in church history, some, by the way, take passages like this and they they use them for a doctrine called complete sanctification. That if you would just use the resources the Lord gives and that you would just follow through a passage like this, that you as an individual and your church could grow to a Christian maturity where on this earth you no longer sin. And you could have the perfect church. And some even have claimed to be the perfect church. Or some think that this passage actually teaches that in this world of here and now, where there's still sin present and death present, that the church will somehow be perfected. No, you see, this passage can't work that way. It can't work that way because the we in this passage includes the church of all ages. It includes the believers who were in Ephesus at that time, And who had died and gone to be in glory. It includes the Apostle Paul. And all the apostles in the first century church. And the second century church. We are one with them. The body of Christ. We now in the church militant state. Are going to have to be in this constant battle. Of rejecting the tricksters. Rejecting the falsehoods. Rejecting our own weaknesses. And clinging to the truth. 
but the body of Christ, even through wrestling with false teachers, was brought to more and more knowledge, the word of God, a more and more purified doctrine, a more and a greater knowledge of Christ. But the ultimate perfection is that church triumphant and us all together being gathered in, united into the body of Christ and that growing number of the elect, some of whom are now perfected, but all of whom one day will be the full church gathered in, united to Jesus Christ and in perfection forever being the mature and the perfected body of Christ. For now, our calling is to be that or to seek that and to strive for that by rejecting lies, trickery, craftiness, false teachings that creep into the church, putting away lying. But the main calling now is living as mature Christians who speak the church in love, the truth in love. What happens when they speak the truth in love? Well, what happens is that the whole body joined and knit together by which what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its shares, cause, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so the picture is actually of a body coming together, being knit together, joined together. And you as God's people also being knit and joined together to Christ by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, edifying one another in love. So one of the main keys to church maturity and Christian maturity will be honesty, good doctrine. And we believe the confessional teachings that we hold dear, that we believe the Lord has in his providence given us and uniting around those but then also uniting in true love it will lead to an honest confession of sin an honest confession of weaknesses but then also looking to the Lord Jesus Christ again and again and saying only he will do only he is the source of maturity only he is the source of edifying Only he is the source of truth that can be spoken in love. How our world, and even our church, desperately needs this, doesn't it? That we would just put away lying. Put away what our catechism warns against. But then, that looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and hearing the word of his gospel, that that would be disseminated and spread through the church. And then, even more broadly, not yet, perfected already but not yet you know the good news of the gospel is is that the Lord looks on his imperfect church through the work of his son and his spirit and that's the ultimately edifying truth the comfort of the gospel that poor and needy sinners we who stumble and fail even gossip from time to time would be forgiven purged cleansed, would mature in leaving that behind and in growing in him to speak the truth in love, the edifying truth. Amen. Let us pray.